This is part three of a three-part podcast. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book Building a Better World in Your Backyard, instead of being angry at bad guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com. You know, it's funny you should use the word resources. Because that is the name of section 2.4 of the big black book. That we haven't gotten to yet, yes. <laughs> Which we haven't gotten to. And I'm thinking like, damn it, Alan, because we can do this. We could go off on so many different tangents yep. that we don't, we don't accomplish the mission that we started off on. Now granted, when you or I are giving a presentation and we're following the slides, we can keep things on course, but we agreed that when we would do this, that we would allow for the tangents. That it's the, yes. the tangents are important. And how, and however, what I want to do is, and you've already kind of suggested, maybe we skip it today. And I'm thinking like, damn it, we can do this. Let's focus. Let's, I, I feel like I've got 12 more points to, 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 to make that are in response to things that you have said. And, um, and I want to, I'm kind of thinking like, you know what? Let's just, let's just do this because section 2.4 is not that big, but it is resources. Yeah. And Mr. Mollison has made, is it Dr. Mollison? Maybe I should be saying doctor. Surely it's Dr. Mollison. I don't know. Um, but Bill Mollison has made some very intriguing points and, and I actually don't have a lot to convey. I mean, most of it is like, you know, how do I convey this without just reading the whole damn section into the podcast? Right. And so I'm, go- I'm going to do my very best. So I'm jumping in. Section 2.4, resources. Um, I have highlighted a single sentence from the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. An ideal technology should, at the very least... Fuel itself. And then, and then I think for technology, we're going to say, yeah, that can't be done, but it can. And, and, uh, as he points out, as he lists off, the things that are biological tend to fuel themselves. And so, hence this biophilic, uh, interest. This biophilic resource. So, you know, go into the technical, like the current definitions of life, um, and the systems definition of life, uh, stuff that's been developed by Fritjof Capra and and the people who are looking at systems view of life. Um, Autopoiesis, the ability to self-organize and self-build, is one of those characteristics, and part of that is the ability to harvest the energy from the environment and resources. So it's more than just energy. It's energy, resources, information from the ambient environment and build yourself. So I would say it's intrinsic to all life to be able to fuel itself. If it can't, mm-hmm. it is not life. Very good point. I mean, he is using the word technology. An ideal technology should, yeah. at the very least, fuel itself. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Um, and so when we say technology, it kind of makes us think of, you know, and, and fuel. It's like, okay, a car is going to fuel itself. It's like, okay. Um, I suppose we get to these electric cars to the point where the solar panels could be so efficient that if it's a, if it's a car, it's an electric car and it has solar panels on it, it theoretically could fuel itself. But, um, so the Aptera, which is supposed to be shipping early next year, uh, for example, uh, they mm-hmm. started by creating a vehicle that was as efficient as they possibly could. It's a tri-wheel vehicle. Uh, mm-hmm. It can hold two passengers, and um, it's able to go a mile on 100 watt-hours, which is like a fraction of what all the others do. And they put solar panels all over it, and they're saying right now that in areas of good solar illumination, you should be able to get upwards of 40 miles a day just off the solar panels mounted on the car. So if your commute is, say, 20 miles, 25 miles on an average day, that just by sitting the car outside, you may very well be able to do all of your running hither and thither and never have to plug it in. So it meets this criteria. Yeah, of course, it kind of, it does operationally, but not in embodied energy, right? It is an artificial construct. Yeah. And, and I think, of course, what Mollison's referring to is going to be, um, different. And, and of course, Mollison wrote this 40 years ago. Yeah. So. Yeah. All my definitions of regenerative design and what we're going for with technology today looks at all of it. It looks at both operational and embodied. Because if you look at it, um, living systems actually more than pay for themselves, both in embodied energy and operational energy. That is, they they harvest materials, information, and energy that they need in order to create themselves, and they do so um you know from the ambient environment and so yeah when we start looking at what it means to be regenerative that's our model and so yeah none of our technologies quite meet that yet but we need to evolve in that direction okay so mollison says resources are and then he lists five things mm-hmm. and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to read the five things and and with each five thing he says a lot more or each of the five things he says much more, but I'm going to give an example. What I'm going to give his ex- for each of them, he gives many examples and he talks about it and stuff like that. But I'm going to list off what the five things are and give one of his examples. Uh, item number one: uh, those which increase by modest use. And his example, one of his examples is green brows. So if you, uh, if, if animals, uh, browse a bit, then you end up with even more than if they did not. And so to me, this, this smacks of paddock ship systems and things of that nature, but you get more of it with modest use. Mm-hmm. Number two, those unaffected by use, and then he gives an example of uh, microhydro. 
microhydroelectric. He, he talks about a small diversion and, um, yeah, hydroelectric generation. Again, that comes back to my rule of under about a third. If you go too much higher, you do begin to affect the resource. Um, and I've always thought 10%, but a third, I think, is a, is, is a fair number. Number three. Yes. Uh, those which disappear or degrade if not used. Um, and the example he gives is, uh, one of the examples he gives is an unharvested crop. So if, if you don't harvest the crop, there are certain crops that if you don't harvest the crop, it, it'll be gone. It'll, de- it'll degrade or disappear. Yeah, I think another interesting example for that one is still, he doesn't call it out, but silvopastoral systems, um, where you have an ecosystem that's in this successional edge between, um, prairie and forest. And, and you're in that point where if you do not have active use by both grazers and browsers, then that system will simply success forward into closed canopy forest and you'll lose it. So. Yeah. It's like you, you can, you can, you know, bring in, um, say rotationally grazed animals and use that area. And if you don't do that, then you will lose that silver pasture into closed canopy forest. Or you'll lose it into desertification. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fencing, the fencing it off thing makes it so that it's, it's, it is going to degrade if you don't use it the way that you've designed for use. Yes. Yeah. Um, number four, those reduced by use. Those ones are easy for us to understand. Yep. Um, he gives examples including clay deposits. So if you, you could use up all your clay, uh, or coal and oil, of course. Mm-hmm. We hear about those a lot. And number five, those which pollute or destroy other resources if used. And, uh, uh, one example out of his, you know, all of his examples is sewers running pollutants to the sea. And, and one of the things that I wanted to mention as we were talking earlier, which I didn't, was that I get, whenever I try to bring up willow feeders or mulch pits or any of this stuff, I, I, so often I am hit with why? Why, why do you care? Why would you bother with that? Why? And my answer doesn't fit into a bumper sticker, which is what, the, of course, this person needs to have. Because, you know, the moment I try to talk about things like sewage treatment plants are just dumping sewage into the rivers. Now, of course, you know, you used the word earlier, effluent. And so it's, it's like, yeah. Um, and I mean, they, they try to take out the chunky bits before they do that. The chunky bits typically go to a landfill. Um, and then they, uh, do tend to, I know that the Missoula, uh, sewage treatment plant, um, they'll run the effluent through a UV light. So, um, the, in theory, the, uh, microbials that go under the UV light, They'll survive the past, but they won't 
propagate. They won't, you know, um, uh, become more. So, like, if there are pathogens, which there are, so there's pathogens that will go past the UV light and they'll go into the river, uh, so it could make people sick, but they are um, stupefied in a way to prevent reproduction. Um, so it's it's like, well, we're putting pathogens into the water, but they're not going to, you know, have a, you know, a double their population or anything. They're, they're kind of, you know, prevent they're they're stupefied from doing that. They're they're kind of rendered incapable of doing that. So it's considered good enough, but um, but is it? And then the the other thing that I think is a is a pretty big problem is going to be all of the spooky things that people have put down their drains and toilets. Like mm-hmm. uh, I think a perfect example, and it's like uh, anybody who has a little bit of DIY in them and has tried to do good things, and they have used paint and then it's like okay we we're not done painting yet but it's the end of the day mm-hmm. and what do you do with that paint and it's like it's all over your brushes and rollers and pans what are you going to do and so i think i think most of our people most of the people listening to this podcast hell i remember when I worked for my dad doing this stuff, we went to the sink. In fact, we had this sink in the shop that yep. was just caked and, 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 and a hundred painting projects worth of, of paint from cleaning the brushes and stuff. Right. And now we don't do that. Now I think, I think Fred came up with a very fascinating way to deal with it, which I think is so important to mention. And that is that, you take a sacrificial bucket and you clean everything into the bucket. And then you set that bucket out in the sun and then it dries. It be- it becomes the paint that it's designed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and then you reuse that bucket that way for many, many painting projects. And then we've got a bucket that's like this and it's probably got three painting projects worth of paint in it. None of it went down our drain. None of it went onto the ground. It, it is stored in the bucket. And when the bucket gets to the point that it's... Paul, which is like, so there are paints. We've had to use them on projects that are non-toxic and biodegradable. But very importantly, when you're talking about paint, you're also talking about volatile organic compounds. Yes. And so, you know, I absolutely refuse to specify any paint that is not uh, capable of being... You know, wash you're talking about in a biodegradable fashion, and at the same time, it has no toxic materials, no PFAS chemicals in them, and um, also produces zero volatile organic compounds uh, while in application and once dried. <laughs> so, so here's here is okay. Uh, this you know you poked me. Yeah, and and so now I'm gonna say like. Do you seriously believe all that shit? You know, how much of it was marketing and how much of it was true? How much of it are you going to find out 10 years from now that they lied? You know, so I, what I really want to do is stick to stuff that is like, 
oh, we made this out of wheat paste. It's a wheat-based mm-hmm. paste paint. Or like we've we've done this. We've we have made so much whitewash, including a lot of whitewash that didn't work. And yep. and it's like you know, right now if I've got seven guys lined up that are like, I'm a whitewash expert, I'm still gonna turn to Fred because because Fred dealt with their failures and came up with a recipe for whitewash that worked. And so it's, it's like, uh, then, and then we can kind of wander into the stuff that's going to be about milk paints and like you make it yourself. So a bunch of stuff where it's like all the materials are edible. Um, and, and, but it's like when you buy this stuff, not only, not only is it like that you're going to buy a natural paint or a clay-based paint or or a lime-based paint or something like that. You're going to buy this stuff, and it costs ten times more than the commercial paints. Oh, it's expensive but, stuff. Of course, I sometimes have a hundred thousand square feet of buildings. Yes, all have to be painted. Very good point. Very good point. All I'm saying is is that um, I am. There's the labels on it, and there's what they say. Yep. And unless I made it myself, I'm very nervous about what's in it. Like, how much of it is lies? Oh, this is, this is VOC free. And it's like, I, I want to believe you, but I don't. And at the same time, it's like, the red cabin needs new paint. It's the the design of this building requires periodic painting. Yep. And it's like, and of course, you know damn well, I I design buildings so that they don't require any paint. Yep. And and I and I I'll have some wood out there that I call that's the sacrificial wood, and we're going to replace that every ten years, as opposed to painting it every ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, uh, that's where I want to go. I, I kind of feel like anywhere where you're using paint, you're just, okay, so now we're going off on tangent, on top of tangent, on top of yep. tangent. <sighs> and, and it's like, uh, uh, the, the point I was trying to make was I am astounded that I have this conversation happen to me so often. Where people have to, where people ask the question, permies ask the question, where we're talking about what goes down the drain, mm-hmm. and and they're asking the question, why do you care? It's away, it goes away, it, it went away. No away, and and it's and I I call it own your own shit, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's like. When you are, when you have to own your own shit, when you have to sit with it, now you're going to be better about it. So, but if you get it to just go away, then, then it's like, it's as if it is, as if it is not a problem, but it is. This is, if you're eating organic or better, that goes from being a waste to being a valuable product. I think, I, I think it, I think the way we need to get to is where it's a valuable product in a permaculture system. And, and then if it's like how, and I also want everybody to keep saying, ew, gross. I want, yes, yes, say that, say that because there's pathogens in there and let's respect them so we don't get sick. And it's, it's like, 
The architect, uh, Richard McDonough, has a very famous statement, the statement he's made very famous, which is, there is no more a way. And then he says, okay, point to a way. Right. Where is a way now? You say that it, we are throwing it away. The So when people have asked me, you know, why do I care? I sometimes, if I'm, you know, want to be pithy about it, just look at them and say, because smart people don't poop in their own bed. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> and the whole thing is that the entire ecosystem, we are now at the point ecosystemically on this planet where humans, there is no more way for humans. Right. Right. If, if, when we create waste, we are pooping in our own bed, period. And our yeah. children and our grand, and, and we and our children are at this very moment wallowing in it. And oh, um, yeah. there's all kinds of health impacts. There's all kinds in, in the entire um, ecosystemic function that is supporting us, allowing us to live, is now suffering and degrading. So Can- Cancer comes from the cancer fairy. Right. So to me, it's kind of like anybody who asks that question, why do I care? Mm-hmm. Um What's happening to me is I think, okay, they have been trained not to think holistically. They have been trained yeah, to think that's very only good reductionist, in a reductionist way. And because they have not, they can't see the rest of the system in front of their eyes, they're not thinking about the fact that there is no moral way, that that system surrounds them, that they are at sea in that system and that there is no more they that anything that they that they create now is something that we all live in that we are pooping in our own bed and that there is no getting away from that you know you know what I, oh this is this is actually perfect because that is a person who has not seen version 1 of permaculture now, I think here at my place, we're currently operating at version three. Mm-hmm. Um, I thank you for saying, uh-huh. And, uh, I, I think that when that, when that person says it, their, their mind is still stuck in, in like they've never even seen version one permaculture and they're attempting to imagine version one permaculture as being better than where they are now, which is not no permaculture. And um, they're struggling even to to even comprehend the idea. But I think that once they see version one permaculture, then they'll understand it. And it's it's kind of like this whole thing of like where we got to where we keep trying to tell people about how great rocket mass heaters are, but they can't believe it until they see it. Mm-hmm. It's like they have to see one and feel one before before they can admit that it even exists or that it's even worthwhile to talk about it it is a thing that is different enough i guess uh or possibly unbelievable until they can get to that point they have to just see one or feel one which is why we're going to do this demonstration here in like 5 or 6 weeks mm-hmm. 
So that way we can bring people in. But we were talking earlier about version one, version two, version three. And, um, and, and so I kind of feel like we, we need to have places that, that demonstrate permaculture and people can come in and, and feel this experience and to be able to, to, to kind of go, wow, I get it now. I get it. Now I understand because it's so twisted right now. And when we talk about sewage, it's like there's not just the poop and there's, there's um, all this other stuff that gets mixed in with it that makes it become effectively toxic waste. So when we talk about putting the sewage into the river, it's like, we got the chunky bits out. But there's a lot of stuff we didn't get out. Yes. And that's going to the river too. Some of it is, is pathogens, like biological stuff that's dangerous. Like we, we took all the sick people of Missoula and put the worst of their sicknesses into one place. And then we dumped it down the river for whoever's away down river. Along with all their pharmacological waste products that came out of their urine and feces. There's the pharmacological things. And then, of course, there's the stuff about the paint. Yeah. And then there's the stuff that's worse than the paint. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and industry that was like, ah, no one will know. And they, you know, kind of snuck it in there. And that's all getting mixed together in a big slurry. And then sent it. Now, and the thing that I'm proposing is, is like, and, and, and it's just an away thing that people are embracing this whole away concept so, so profoundly. But it's like, if you're going to keep it all and you're going to own your own shit and you're going to keep it, suddenly you care. Suddenly you want to, you want to do a good and wholesome thing with it. Suddenly this whole concept of like, okay, I, I'm, I made a paint and, and I know that it's going to, you know, be something that's going to keep water off of this other thing over here or whatever. I mean, with the exception of possibly just clay based paints, mm-hmm. it's keeping water off somehow. And usually it's going to be an oil that polymerizes or there's a few other techniques, but it's something that's going to keep water off. And it's like, okay, is it a food that I can just compost? Um, and it, you know, and this kind of leads into the whole space of how, how I so desperately hate lasagna gardens. But, oh, that's a whole other tangent I don't want to touch right now. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul-versation today at permies.com slash consult. permies.com slash consult. But if it's like if it's, if, it, if there's a possibility of anything in there that we do not want in our soils, 
Then I love Fred's bucket technique. We wash all of our brushes into the bucket. The bucket is set out in the sun. The water evaporates. And whatever's left is that mystery goo that's basically, it's, it's basically painting the bottom of the bucket now. Yeah. It's going to, to turn into this and, and then it's going to accumulate. And then after we've done like 40 projects, the bucket is full enough with layers of paint that let's just, let's just take this bucket to the dump. We're going to take it now to where it's going to sit in a very inert fashion in, you know, in the, at the dump. And it's like, uh, I wish we want to have less stuff that we're taking to the dump, but at least it's not in our soils. And granted, that is an away. And, um, it's, it's plausible that we could make our own dump. I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't it think I want to do dumps. Therefore, uh, regenerative design does not create dumps. So I would say let's design a system that doesn't use paint. Or that uses a paint that is recycled um, at 100% efficiency by the biosphere. And and it's like the only way to be sure that that's what it is is you got to make it yourself. And now, at some point we'll get to the at some point we get to the stage where we can scale that, and we have an understanding of how to create paints like that, and therefore it can be created as a product. But we're at the stage right now where that's a very complicated question. I have to get EPDs, uh, environmental product declarations, on on products like this. Hmm. Do the due diligence. Um, Living product challenge has um, required stickers require the um, manufacturer to list all components down to, I believe it's 100 parts per million, um, and so forth. Um, so, yeah, when we're doing these things, we're doing um, assessment of um, of all the things we're using at, um, you know, of all of the all of the, the constituent parts down to 100 ppm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're having to do to try to do is at scale um, and, and do our best at the moment we can at scale. And by doing that and, and driving vendors to having to do EPDs and other kinds of data sheets and so forth and LPC labels and so forth, we're actually driving them to do this analysis and to document uh, what is in their products and what its effects are. And the problem, again, comes up with um, because they've gone through all that process, the product ends up being far more expensive, and thus people tend to not be drawn to it, but even even worse – because the product is so much more expensive, it becomes worthwhile to some people to lie about it. And yeah, so I, mean, I think again we get we get into the problem of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And here's what I mean by that. When we first I'm a lead accredited professional, right? And mm-hmm. when the very first lead buildings started, I'm not going to defend lead that much because it's just basically let's do it. Basically, what it says is let's make the building a few percent less awful than average. Okay. Yeah. But when it first started, it was dang hard to do. Right. I mean, the yeah. first people who were creating lead buildings, the market didn't exist. It just, it was very hard to do. All the waste diversion stuff of not sending all kinds of just huge amounts of waste in the landfill, all the things about maintaining the indoor air quality, about using less toxic materials in the building, all that stuff was actually Pretty hard using less water, you know, less water wastage, less energy wastage, and so forth. Okay, 
over the past 20 years, that has all become much easier as the market has driven in that direction. And it has done so True. at its starts. And so we're now down to the point where, um, boy, you get a few professionals together and you can just about uh, design a lead platinum building almost as easy as you can a non-lead building these days, right? right. It is measurably de- uh, better in many, 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 many ways. Yes. So it took us a while to get there, and yes, there were, you know, and it's still not, but hey, would I, would I take a lead platinum building over, if it's not perfect, over, you know, what we were building 30 years ago? Absolutely. And yes. now we're doing it with Living Futures and we're, we're, we're building the absolute best buildings we can. We're analyzing all this. Bifolic design is part of mm-hmm. the LBC standard, by the way. You have to have a bifolic design shred. You have to, Use non-toxic materials. You've got to produce your own energy. You've got to produce no weight. You know all these sorts of things. So to me, I'm engaged with it because it's that iterative process of of driving it right and of driving better products. And the reason that really good paints are expensive right now is the same reason that some of those lead compliant materials were so expensive in the early days. But now I can get lead compliant materials and well building uh, compliant materials and even some um, red list compliant materials that have none of the toxic gick in it now for prices approaching the, and in some cases equaling the other products because you, in the beginning, the R and D and everything else has to be paid for. And eventually what you get is you get products that become competitive. And that's what we're driving for, right? Right now there is a market that will pay that extra premium for a more healthy building, a more sustainable building, a more regenerative building. And they are helping pave the way for mainstream mainstreaming of these solutions where they they have been scaled up in adoption enough that they can become price parity with uh, the toxic alternative, and that's kind of how I'm poking at it. You know, is is helping to drive that process forward. And I'm hoping to drive the process forward of people being able to do things with the materials that are naturally occurring on their land. Absolutely. Uh, and so there's room for that. There's a lot yeah, of space for that. Yes. I, I think, you know, when it comes to paint, uh, I kind of feel like, okay, can we pull this off using less than 1% of the paint that's traditionally used? Mm-hmm. Not even thinking about, cause even if, cause we're using less than 1% of the paint and we're using the world's most toxic paint. I think we're still coming in as less toxic than if you use a really excellent high quality paint that is labeled as non-toxic. Yeah, we, have so, to, we have to do the math on that. I can't, I can't tell you. No, no, you, you're okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. We are in some squishy maths territory. Yeah. And then at the same time, if I can go a little bit farther and then use utterly zero paint, I think we know who wins that one. <laughs> but uh, it's like, yeah, I built this thing out of mud and logs and some rocks. I think I think I'm coming out way ahead here. So 
but there are some elements that I haven't quite solved yet. So it's about trying things out. Now you mentioned lead and then getting into lead after 20 years. And, and that makes me think about, yeah, we're currently arguing about version five lead, which we could never have if there was never a version four lead. Right. Yeah. All right. I have one last bit to share out of Bill Mollison's book. Well, I want to just point out real quickly, as you listed those five things that Mr. Mollison does point out, we really want to concentrate on the first three, right? Things that increase with modest use, that are unaffected by use, or that disappear if you don't use it. And really, it's sort of his longer form way of saying, let's act like an ecosystem, right? Uh, Yeah. um, use things the way ecosystems tend to use them. Um, and, um, and he also, of course, comes in, I don't know if this is where you're going to go next, but in this idea of, um, a responsible society actually, um, doesn't allow for the use of things that are in category five, that destroy or pollute other resources. See, that that's, that's the part that I've highlighted. So, yeah. although the, you, you, you selected, uh, a euphemism that he did not go for. He he went right for the jugular. He says, it follows that a sane society manages resource resources categories one to four wisely, bans the use of resource category five, and regulates all uses to produce sustainable yield. This is called Resource management. Yeah. So um, you were saying avoid, and he he was saying something about sane society. <laughs> it's like yes. it's like he's he's drawing some lines that are a little thicker and blacker than the lines you were drawing. <laughs> he's, well, I, you I can had, tell he's kind of getting into a political space here. Yes. Well, yeah. I had looked at, and I'm going to look at one other sentence he has here that I had marked because I thought it was. It was, uh, you know, appropriate. It says failure to do this will cause a society itself to fail. Yeah. Um, and he, he basically says, uh, again, to paraphrase, um, all the effects of that, he lists a lot of them, uh, will bring any society down more surely and permanently than war itself. So I think that's also a very strong statement. And, um, yes. Yes, and that, I, that is. You know, um, so the last thing I would point out uh, off of this section is um, where he talks about what he calls his principle of disorder. And um, he's talking about basically cycling resources and the fact that um, ecosystems are very effective at recycling resources, but there is a saturation point. There's a limit to the amount of a resource that any given ecosystem or biome can absorb uh, while maintaining its functionality. And if we give it more than it can absorb, it becomes basically toxic waste, even if it were a resource in lower quantity. And that therefore, um, in order to keep, um, to, to keep things, a resource cycling in balance, that we have to really think about not just quality of a thing that we're cycling into the environment, but the quantity. 
um, the quality. Is it non-toxic? Is it something that the environment can use and so forth? Uh, that's the quality. Quantity. Are we giving it to the environment in an amount that the environment can handle? If not, it becomes chronic pollution. And that would be, um, I think, the last thing I would really like to point out about that he makes a very good point about um, in um, uh, in his section here on resource um, resources. Right. And he uses the word sociopathy. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, like, all right, that's a strong word, but yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, but again, rather political as a, as a, whereas I, I, the thing I love about permaculture is it's a politicalness that yeah. it's, it's basically let's, let's just all go out into our gardens and make and, and build a better world in our gardens. We will, you know, and, and I kind of think that from the people, it's kind of like what we were talking about before, the people that are like, I don't see why you don't just, you know, flush a toilet. What's the big deal? And, um, and I think they need to see, um, a permaculture system and, and, and value it in order to be able to, to contemplate the idea of moving away. Now, the other thing is, is that you were talking about all these systems of, um, let's go buy our materials. And I'm kind of thinking like, um, for example, the, with the Wafati, I hope to someday be able to build a Wafati and document it so well that it becomes the first ever natural building that costs less than conventional buildings, uh, as is. So a conventional building, which is somehow probably painted. And so it's like, okay, somebody wants a three bedroom home and they're going to have it built in their area, uh, by conventional builders. And it's going to cost, I'm going to say $150,000 or they can have a building with the exact same footprint and they live in a woodland that with some slope. And they can have the, the professional builders come in and build that for half. And they have all of the same luxuries and it's the same size and everything, but the cost was half because they got a lot of materials right off of the land and the whole thing went together much, much faster. That is what I'm searching for that is what i what i wish for and so you know when we're talking about paint and plastic and rubber and the costs and and all that stuff it's like i want to i i and and basically it's like i need to build like like four more wafatis so we can we can we can refine the design and document it and and get the information out there, mm-hmm. and then it and then it comes back to like everything in my world is about getting more boots in the boot camp, and and it's like or uh, the other thing is is seppers. If we have seppers, it's been amazing how we've had people who uh, come out here for like uh, a month or two weeks, and um, they bring some skills and they'll, and they will join the boot camp for half a day every day or 
they'll join the boot camp full time while they're a sepper or some of them can only do a couple of, uh, of, uh, half days here and there. And, uh, by, uh, almost universally, the seppers come and, um, they put in what they can. And a lot of them show up and they, they're like, I'm a plumber. Let's do some plumbing. And, uh, and their knowledge gets transferred into the boot camp. And so there's that too. So I want to say it all comes down to the boot camp because that's where we really build. That's where we do the long-term stuff. And, uh, but the seppers come, especially in the wintertime, they get to, have their own rocket mass heater to operate for a few weeks or maybe just a few days and really, really experience that rocket mass heater, but at the same time move things forward so that we can get to the point that we have the first ever natural building that might cost less than conventional even when you're also paying for labor. I'm sorry, I, that's another tangent that I'm going off on. It is. I'm just sitting here thinking what you're telling me is that you want the CapEx to be half and the OpEx to be a fifth or less. <laughs> so for those who aren't into that, cap, CapEx, of course, is capital expense. That's the upfront cost right, of the of the building, half. Mm-hmm. And then OpEx, operational expense, that would include the costs in energy and everything oh, else. Yeah. yeah. Operational expense. So, yeah. So you're 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 looking at something like a, a, a Wafati when it's properly designed. The the OPEX should be maybe a tenth of um, a normal, a, a conventionally built house in the same yeah. area. I I like to think so, and um, and of course no paint, uh, no cement, um, and and my concerns about cement I think are. You know, probably I'm 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 probably a little bit more whiny about cement than you are, um, and uh, and that's okay. That's cool. All of us, all of us that are bonkers about permaculture, um, all of us that are bonkers about permaculture and actually doing something, actually building something, um, we all have our different philosophy sets. Uh, it's it's a little too easy. For somebody that is not building anything to use cyclic stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like when you're trying to solve something and actually build it, then they tend to squirrel all over the place. And it's like, you know, they want to, uh, use the best attributes of each non-existent thing and, and, uh, therefore it's better. And it's like, you know, but you never built anything. And so you got to pick one. And so, um, and I think we're doing some amazing things at, at finding where, well, basically accomplishing the impossible. Um, you know, usually when we get about iteration five, we're accomplishing the impossible. Uh, which by the way, uh, uh, we accomplished the impossible this last summer. You were there. You took pictures. I have not recorded a podcast about the PTJ. Yes. I, I, the last, so I've got, I did a six month bit where I put out no podcast because I just did too much all at once. I took on too many projects. Something had to give. And so the podcasts were what gave, but, um, you were there and, uh, uh, and, and so there was a thing that we accomplished at the PDJ this year that, broke world records and you 
I think you said you were going to either make a book or a movie. I'm not sure what you were going to do. I remember you telling me that you were taking some glamour photographs of yes. the artifacts from this. Yep. We, have, uh, we have some documentation. We were hoping that once um, I can get back with Uncle Mud, we can document the what what was designed for the the contraption you're talking about and actually um, get a, get some first stuff out in a small little book so people can start experimenting with it. Can you give us a 60-second summary of what was accomplished? Sure. Um, there's a long history in pottery and fi- of, of wood-burning, uh, wood-fired pottery kilns. And traditionally, they use huge amounts of wood. They burn for a long time, and they give off a huge amount of smoke. And the question that was being tackled was, can a J-tube combustion um, system be used to fire a pottery kiln in a way that uses a tiny fraction of the amount of fuel and also combusts cleanly, no smoke, and does so much more quickly than um, most uh, of the wood-fired pottery? And further, can it do so for even high-fired pottery? That's the pottery that requires some of the highest heat. And the short form of it is we proved all of the above is not only possible, but actually very achievable. My my understanding is, is that not only did we achieve it, but we we beat earlier records by I believe a factor of one hundred in in wood used. Yes. Cause it, cause I got the impression that in order to reach the appropriate temperatures for you know uh, for this level of ceramics, that they were going through pretty much a, almost a quart of wood in one burn. And um we accomplished the same effects with a few handfuls of wood. Yes. And so, um, so we didn't just win, we knocked, and so apparently in the world of ceramics, word went out right away and went across the globe and all of this, there's, there's so much powerful interest now in rocket stuff for ceramics. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's like, uh, wouldn't that be amazing if we could finally get the attention we've been trying to get for decades uh, and it all came from ceramics? <laughs> well, I'll say this. I would love to get that pulled together. I need I need to get some time with Uncle Mud and with the um, ceramicists to kind of pull it together. Right. Lisa um, Orr was our, Orr, our yeah. expert that yeah. was here uh, at the time, and she brought in a couple of other experts. And next thing you know, there's, you know, yeah, it's all over the world, and everybody wants to be here. So Uncle Mud was the one who kind of was in charge of building the contraptions. So mm-hmm. we need to get some drawings from him, and we need to kind of pull it all together and get some, get some, some verbiage from him, get some verbiage from Lisa, pull it all together. We got some great pictures of the things that were fired. Um, 
And in a number of those pictures, we put the cones right next to us. People who know about yeah. pottery will know you use these cones in the kiln to show when you hit a certain critical temperature. And so you can literally see, here's a piece of high-fire ceramic with the high-fire cone right next to it that you can see, you know, yeah. what happened. Uh, so you can, it's documenting the results of, um, of doing this. So yeah, I need some help on that. I've got so many things happening right now that that has <laughs> not that has not sort of been on the, hot, the the top of the priority list. So if anybody's like hopping up and down to see that book happen, then let us know um, if you want to help. Yeah, there's of course all of these projects. There's just so much work to be done, yeah. and it's it easily takes you away from all the other things that you got to get done. But I I do want to take this moment as long as we're talking about it. I need to send a, send out a neener neener to, um, uh, as I was talking about these designs for the kiln, um, there was a rocket mass heater expert who kept saying it cannot be done. It is not possible. Don't even try. You're wasting your time. And in fact, I paid for him to be here last fall and I'm, as we're going through the video and editing for the free heat movie, cause we did a prototype of the, uh, of the kiln. He was as, as like Rodney is putting pieces into place and other people are stacking it. He's not helping. He's trying to take it apart. Like you can't do it. Stop doing it. It's not possible. And, and he's, he's actually. So we've got it on video. We're editing the video. <laughs> We're looking at him saying, it cannot be done. Don't do it. And, and they, they went ahead and, and built it anyway and just pushed him back, literally pushed him back. Paul said, we're going to try. And, and it's like, so we're going to at least see what happens. And we got to high fire temperatures last fall. Yeah. And, um, right in front of him, when he was saying it cannot be done and suddenly he's disappeared. He's nowhere for the camera to find. <laughs> so this, this is my neener neener moment. <laughs> I, I pushed for this to exist. I pushed for this to happen and it worked. And so I, I, I get to take my strut. I get to say I told you so and I'm and I'm glad that we crossed not only crossed the finish line but we crossed it with 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 such a margin of success that's that's so amazing. So um thanks Alan I I'm glad we had this chat. <laughs> um and of course the expert was not you it was somebody else. Um, but, but the results were astounding. And, um, I think that the, uh, the, the epic J tube that came from it is, is amazing. I, I also want to give a a shout out to everybody who's ever backed one of my Kickstarters. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's what keeps everything moving forward. Uh, also a shout out to everybody who's ever put in a half a day in the boot camp, um, or been here in any way and put their hands on to helping to build something. It, it, all of this stuff helps to move all of this forward. 
And events like this where, where we have conquered something that was supposedly impossible, the experts said was impossible. This is kind of what it's all about. This is what we put all this work in for is, is like, and, and in fact, when you think about an electric kiln or a natural gas fired kiln, the sheer amount of resources consumed, of energy consumed, is nauseating. That's a lot of fuel and or energy that goes into that process. And now, through rocket stuff, we have we have reduced it down to a few sticks. Damn, we're good. We are saving the world, man. Um, thank you, Alan, for your large role in that. And I do hope you get that that book created because it will be stunning. Hmm. It's on the list. We'll see if we can get it, get uh, <laughs> get it out. <laughs> All right. So hey, back to work. <laughs> quit quit lazing about making podcasts. So, uh are, do you have anything else that you want to say right now? Oh, I think we've uh think we've covered it. Okay. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about resources, homesteading and permaculture all the time. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection.